Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by Professor John Marini, our expert on the Western. So far we have already done four episodes on John Ford and we have also done episodes on Sam Peckinpah. This is our third. We talked about The Wild Bunch, we talked about Ride the High Country and today we are talking about the other impressive Western Sam Peckinpah made, a movie he called his favorite and which is far and away the least violent thing he ever directed. And that is The Ballad of Cable Hogue, starring Jason Robards as Cable Hogue. Now, this is a movie that's almost bereft of violence, but nevertheless it is a confrontation of man with nature and with American history. And you see in uh, Cable Hogue that he is a kind of man of the people, so it's fitting to talk about him in a ballad. But at the same time, he is also a distinctive individual that escapes to a certain extent a social life, a way of living among other people in a community. Cable Hogue starts as an outlaw among other outlaws and it turns out that a gang of thieves is not enough for justice because these two other guys faced with the necessity of the desert steal his water and leave him to die because he seems to hesitate to shoot anybody. They take him for a coward and think that the payment of cowardice is death, so they leave him for dead. And he desperately prays God but he's starving and thirsting for days up until he hits water. And he survives. And not long afterwards, he realizes that what saves his life could actually become a business. This is between two stations on the stagecoach, but nobody else found water. So he sets up a business. He sets up a legal claim to the territory. He sets up everything needed to exploit the life-saving gift of water and turn it into property. In a beautifully Lockean way, he refuses to thank God for his gift, but instead he says that he did it by himself, by mixing his labor with nature. And so he has a claim in law now as well, as in right. And from there on, you see where he stands to the march of progress. Where will he find love? How will he deal with the people who betrayed him? How does he deal with the other charming character in the movie, the Reverend? And of course, his own tragic ending. It's a Sam Peckinpah movie after all, so it's not going to end well, but it has a remarkably charming character who seems almost unfit for serious storytelling. He's just a bit too jocose. And so perhaps, sir, we should start with talking about this character, Cable Hogue, played by Jason Robarts. Yes, I think just looking at the name Hogue, you get an indication in a certain way. (laughs) of uh, how to think about what it is that he is personifying in the movie. And yet it's a very good treatment, really, of the things that matter to Peckinpah, like God, nature, progress, civilization, property, all these things come into play in the movie. And it is, as you say, essentially, it ends tragically, but it's a comedy. So it's in a way you could say it's a tragic comedy or a comic tragedy. I don't know (laughs) how you want to quite put it. But uh, when you look at Hogg as the ground of the name Hogg, you think, well, what Self-preservation, survival is the most basic thing. And in in the opening there, he begins in the desert there. As you mentioned, he's left on his own. And he engages in a really a conversation with God, with Lord. And, And of course, he's basically expecting God to preserve him and give him what he needs, at least in the short run, in order to keep from dying of thirst. 
But God is not forthcoming in terms of fulfilling his desire for water. And so, as you mentioned again, when he, in his fourth day, I believe it is, he did it before God created the world, he found his own water. And as you said then, it was not God that in any way helped him. This is my water, he said. And he understands and establishes the meaning of what it is that has to be done in order to preserve yourself. Some things, of course, God can give you, but some things you have to do for yourself. Just looking at parts of it again, I hadn't remembered the song, the ballad itself, but the lyrics of the song are actually pretty revealing, too, because it's about the transformation in a certain way, about how it is that things can be made to change. And the expectation of change is in the lyrics. The song begins, tomorrow is the song I sing. Mm -hmm. Yesterday don't mean a thing. Tomorrow, ragmen may be kings. And that's all about transformation in a certain way. How is progress made? How is the transformation of a world brought about? And it becomes clear that in the finding of water and on his death marker there, you can see that there's a certain miracle to what he did <laughs> by himself. I mean, if Jesus could turn water into wine, that's a miracle. Certainly finding water where there is none is a kind of a miracle. But that's the human miracle on the Lockean model of a miracle. And you could say that as we come to understand capitalism, but Locke understood this in terms of freedom, what we understand about capitalism is that it generates or produces wealth. But Locke's innovation in a certain way is in thinking about wealth not as a thing that is already concrete and made and has substance like gold or land or any of those things, but the product really of the way in which human ingenuity and what comes to be called productivity is not a product of resources outside of man. Productivity is a resource of man, the mind of man, the creativity of man, the freedom of man. And so for Locke, it's almost miraculous when you can take something that wasn't useful to man before and make it useful. You notice in his book five on property there, when he talks about the steps to acquiring property, and he has that five steps as to when an acorn becomes property to someone, he gives you the five steps of how do you do it, right from when you pick it up, you bring it home. The third step is the most important in an acorn. You boil it. So in thinking about it in terms of how you take something that was previously useless and make it useful, that's a form of productivity is going to transform the world. Yeah. That kind of transformation is fundamental. Now, Locke doesn't exclude God, but he says, you know, man has to do a lot of this too. Yep. You have to do this for yourself. Exactly. And so you have to take a desert and turn it into a garden. But of course, all of that implies that freedom means that there can be no boundaries in terms of status or rank that gives somebody an advantage. Yeah. You know, that makes it impossible, in other words, for those that are truly deserving of rewards from ever receiving them because they can never exercise their talents if the scarce goods are always only in the hands of the few who have political power as well. And so I think with Cable Hoke, it begins with his conversation with the Lord. And it ends with a conversation with the Lord on the part of the preacher, Joshua, the David Warner character, in his eulogy yes. to Hogue. And it's a very interesting uh, eulogy that he gives. It's, I think, descriptive, really, of the problem of a guy like Cable Hogue, who was essentially nobody. 
There's one of the scenes when he's talking to Hildy, and she asks him about, you know, why don't you live in town? You know, he's out there in the desert. And he says, uh, in town, I'd be nothing. Been that before. In other words, he says, out here, I got a good start. In a place that's already established and somebody of his rank or demeanor or his whatever you want to call what he is, he knows he would be nothing. Yes. And you have to really transform the whole of something before somebody that was nothing can become something. How, how do you turn a ragman into a king? You don't do it in a kingdom. Yeah. You do it in a different way. And so it's a great deal of Locke thought is about not merely producing wealth, but producing the things that human beings need. But it's very clear for Locke and for Peckinpah that happiness is not simply a matter of wealth. I mean, that you see both in the way in which Hilde relates to Cable. And she, of course, is in her own way an entrepreneur. Yes. She's a social outcast because of her occupation, but she's free. And once Cable tells Joshua when he's talking about Hilde, he says, when she's leaving, he's asking Joshua to give her his love. And so he says, I'll give her your love. And Hogue says, that's all you can do, he says. You can't convince Hilde with anything but hard cash. Yep. So <laughs> she, too, is essentially, and this is where I think the Rousseauian element comes in. Those scenes out there when they're together for that little while, when the song Butterfly Morning, those are about as romantic scenes as you can find in almost any kind of movie. Yeah, it is a beautiful montage of their weeks together. She, yeah, she only yeah. drives by to say hello after their acquaintance in town, but she turns out to stay there a long time. Yeah, right. And uh, you have this beautiful montage of love in the wilderness. Yeah, and she clearly likes Hogue because he too is an individual. And the way his views about her do not derive from the social views of the town, the town of, of Dead Dog, because she's an outcast. And yes. from his point of view, she's not an outcast. And so it's a real natural kind of just spontaneous attraction that people have that, that yeah. becomes more real than the contractual kind of marriage that is more businesslike. Yes. Uh, so for her, there's no such thing as contract or she doesn't become property of the man. They're just a man and a woman in a place where it's about as desolate in some ways, but in many ways, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. I know that desert down there that's in southern Nevada. It's right near Las Vegas. It's called the Valley of Fire, where he filmed this. And uh, it's a spectacular place in terms of the beauty of it, but also the harshness of it. That's one of the things about the desert. It's a place where you have to become observant in a way you don't have to in places that have plentiful water or, you know, where you see lots of grass and lots of flowers. You tend to miss, but in the desert, after a rain, when the flowers come up, you can't miss it. Everything is harsh. What lives becomes beautiful. And I've known a lot of those prospectors that came out to Nevada to prospect. You know, in the beginning of the 20th century, some of them became mesmerized living out in the desert, and they stayed there their whole life. And they live basically like hermits in some of these old mining areas. So the desert is a very mesmerizing place, but it's not a place that Hilde wants to be in. But she does want to be with Cable. And, of course, 
when she leaves to go to San Francisco, he's still involved in establishing really a business that goes that's between Dead Dog and whatever that town is. Lizard, I think it is, something like that. Strength. But another thing that's very interesting about the movie, from the point of view of Peckinpah, because this is the first movie he makes after The Wild Bunch. Yep. And so his reputation was on the rise. He goes down there to the desert to make Cable Ho. And when he gets there, it had rained like for days in the desert. I mean, you get some tremendous rains in the desert. I saw some of the crew, LQ Jones and some of the people that went down there. They said they go to the desert and they're completely unable to film. Six bridges had been washed out. They were in a hotel area there in a place called Overton, and they had to wait three weeks before they could even start filming the movie, before the desert started to dry out a little bit. Yep. And it turned out to be, from the point of view of just the filmmaking, it was a disaster for Peck and Paw because they had this whole crew all just time on their hands. They were drinking and carousing. Supposedly, they had a $70,000 bar bill in this place, and they were months over schedule and million dollars over budget. And Warner Brothers, who had been considering, because they had two other movies on coming online, both of which became big hits. One was Deliverance, and the other was Jeremiah Johnson, and they wanted Peckinpah to direct those two. And after Hogue, they just cut relations with Peckinpah. Yeah, permanently. So it was a disaster for him. I mean, I think both of those other movies were pretty good, but it would have been interesting to see what Peckinpah might have done with something like Jeremiah Johnson. Yes, exactly. But from the point of view of Peckinpah, I think he thought he made a movie here that answered his critics about his ability to make movies that were not violent. Yeah, there's nothing violent or shocking. All the interest of the movie depends on the beautiful cinematography. He worked again with Lucien Ballard, who made all his big westerns. He's the guy who photographed right the high country, had just done the Wild Bunch the year before. He also filmed The Getaway for Peckinpah, the big Steve McQueen, Ali McGraw movie. He was famous, Ballard, for shooting Kubrick's The Killing, the beautiful noir. So, very talented guy. Uh-huh. Now he's let loose on the desert, which was unusually good at filming. Yeah. What this does for editing and for characterization, yeah, it really beats violence most of the time. And the joking yeah. characters and the romance. All of these things serve to drive the story along in a way that's constantly surprising, but also lets you know that you're moving towards an inevitable end that you're not going to like. And so you have this sort of tragic bend in the comedy, but without any of the violence, and that shows mastery. Yeah. Another thing that struck me at the time when I watched it, because I remember when it came out, we were in, in America, the worst part of the Vietnam War when Cambodia and all those things were coming up. Yeah. And you'll notice one touch that Peckinpah had that I can't imagine could do anything but infuriate the intellectuals. Do you remember the scene when Slim Pickens comes out on the stage and brings him an American flag? Mm-hmm. And he puts the flag up over the <laughs> yes. cable springs. However you want to understand that, that was a kind of thing that only a guy like Peckinpah would do a guy who doesn't care about the intellectuals think about it. Yeah. Because that was the symbol of patriotism. Yes. These students were burning flags at the time. Yes. The Vietnam War was a big trauma in America in those years. Yeah, and this made for a good gesture of defiance. 
Yeah, it was, and it was a touching scene, the way he filmed it. And clearly, for Peckinpah, that could mean many things. Oh, yeah. But in a way, his reverence for the land and for the country is not dictated by the moment, by the politics. It's about the way in which a people come to establish meaning in something, the memories and all of the things that establish what a country is, or even what a territory is, what land is like the Western, the desert. Yeah. Clearly, the desert is treated with a great deal of respect in a cable's mind. It's like some new planet almost from the point of view of the cities that had become industrialized and places of uh, both physical unhealthiness in terms of pollution and smoke and disease but also morally not so great yeah and you see that the people in the city do not pay attention to the moral drama of humanity within nature. Late in the movie, the plot turns around so that our own Cable has to fight these two guys again. They robbed him once and they want to rob him again. Yeah, and in yeah. the middle of this incredibly strong moral statement and the only action actually in the movie, you see these people passing by in a car, but they don't give a damn. They yeah. don't even stop to watch. Somehow the quick living, the hustle and bustle of the city has made these people think that life passed by the old west, life passed by the desert. You don't stare at this stuff anymore. You have to go somewhere. You have to follow the march of progress. You can't sit and stare at the eternal things. Right. But you notice Hogue is not vindictive Mm -hmm. in the treatment of both of his partners. In fact, he leaves his business to the Strother Martin character. Yes. He has reincorporated him. So when you look at the way in which these things are juxtaposed, you know, his business is built on the fact that transportation is going to be animal transportation. And that mm-hmm. means that you have to have water in between this and that point. His business is being put out of business by gasoline and by the automobile. Yep. And yet, from Cope's point of view, nothing seems to crush his spirit in any way. Yeah. Not even his death really crushes his spirit when he gets run over by this thing that kills him. I mean, progress literally does kill him, right, with the car. You know, when they go up to him and they're saying, you don't look so good, Cable, are you in trouble? And he says, no trouble, just dying. (laughs) That's reckoning. Well, it comes to all of us. Yes. And when you think about what he says about his own death, is a very human way of thinking about it as well, because he says not so much the dying, not knowing what they're going to say about you. (laughs) He's one of the few he's able to hear his own eulogy. Yep. You can do that in literature. I think Tom Sawyer in in Twain, someone's able to see what is being said about them because they haven't really died. But here to have it done, have it known what is being said of you is a human thing. I mean, because that's what really remains in a certain way how people come to understand or how they have understood you and what's likely to be lasting. Even the most momentous kinds of events, say Gettysburg, when Lincoln is trying to immortalize them, he can't immortalize. Their deeds did what they did, but they won't be remembered. So he says they will little note nor long remember what we said here. They can't forget what they did here, but that's just the opposite. Yep. Lincoln knew it. He knew that the only way that'll live is if the words can give meaning to that event that will live on. Yes. Speeches last longer than deeds. And in fact, for deeds to be remembered, speeches themselves have to take on the character of deeds. That is to say, those speeches that change people's lives. 
they will be remembered in that way. They will make a difference. And that's how we really come to know almost everything is the way we turn it into some form of speech. Exactly. So that even Cable Hogue, what's so interesting about him is that he's willing to move on from this business that is based on his life-saving miracle. He's actually willing to move on to this, so it's okay for him to die. Now, moving on was supposed to be New Orleans. His prostitute girlfriend is back. She's rich because she married some rich old guy and got his money. And now she can have the fun life that she always wanted. And Cable Hogue is along for the ride, but it's a ride that's never going to happen because he can't really return to the city. It's not that he is stuck in the desert exactly. It's just that he can't return to the city. The only way he can return, of course, is in story form. And even his eulogy, the Padre has to show up right at the right moment. And then he himself has motorized, right? That Father Joshua is now Mm. on a motorcycle with a sidecar and he shows up right in time. Even this has to happen outside of the city. It is not a memorial funeral. It's not something that anybody Mm. else gives a damn about. It's something we give a damn about because he's such an interesting guy. He's somebody who lives at the edge of human things and somehow brings us back into the past before progress citified everything and reveals something about American character that is immediately recognizable. There is a bit of Tom Sawyer actually in this guy. There is a bit of Huck Finn too because he's a bit more on the wild side. He grows like the huckleberry without any tending or cultivation. But like Tom Sawyer, he does have wit and cunning and he does cunning things rather than forceful things. So it's an immediately recognizable kind of man in America. And so a lot hinges on what is this? As you pointed out, the score, which is by Jerry Goldsmith, and it's a fine score, also comes with these other songs by Richard Gillis that work as Mm -hmm. themes for each of the characters. We just mentioned Father Joshua. He has his own theme, Wait For Me Sunrise. Because you hope that at the end of the night there's sunrise. You hope that there is rest, repose in God after all the turmoil. And as you said, Hildy, the city girl, the whore, the woman who has to do conniving things to get money, her theme, as you said, Butterfly Morning, that points to spontaneous joy. Oh, yeah. To what Rousseau calls the sweet sentiment of existence. It's just such a pleasure to be who we are, at least at such rare moments. Now, she might have to do all sorts of things to make a living, and she might have to acquire certain habits and a certain character, but that cannot fully conceal this natural joyousness in her. However, Hogue is a more complicated guy. Up until the moment yeah, he, he dies, you don't understand what is the full meaning of tomorrow is the song I sing. Ultimately, mm. you have to square with your own mortality. If you get a song out yeah, of it, well, at least it's easier to die. But what you notice is that it's clear that in terms of the genuine love and affection and the sweetness of life that they did experience together yes. in those few weeks, that very brief time, But it's very clear that could have translated into something more. When she comes back, she's just wondering whether he's willing to leave the desert. And he's willing to leave the desert, but it does show you the extent to which chance still rules. Yes. She has come back because there was something special there, but they couldn't, a chance determined whether or not it could be actualized. And it wasn't, couldn't be. So then you create the poetry that you're talking about. Yes about the event and it's in song and it's in the eulogy talking about how he had built this empire you know the sermon is a good sermon it's an embellishment but it's not a lie yeah 
in the end, it boils down to the most simple way of, of understanding a guy like Cable Hogue. And it's really, uh, this was a man. Yes. Not a good man, not a bad man, but he was a man. And he even talks about in the eulogy about because he loved the desert and had lived in the desert so long, he, when he faces the Lord, he's hopeful that he'll get to the pearly gates. But if he doesn't, there's a contingency plan he has. At least in the sermon here, he said, uh, I feel he's talking to God, Joshua. I feel he is worth consideration. But if you feel he is not, you should know that Hogue lived, then died here in the desert. And I'm sure hell will never be too hot for him. And then he went on. He never went to church. He didn't need to. The whole desert was his cathedral. And, you know, he loved the desert, loved it deeper than he'd ever say. He built his empire, but was man enough to give it up for love when the time came. So everything that was revealed potentially as satisfactory ending, I mean, a good ending by any accounts, wasn't meant to be. But the whole of it was comic in a certain way. It doesn't feel like a tragedy, like you're completely destroyed at the end. Yeah, I mean, this is not just the one Peckinpah movie bereft of violence, but it is also bereft of agony, and to a very large yeah. extent bereft of the sordid. And that points to Peckinpah's attempt to show that you could be American and live with it. Americans are by nature restless. They know they are mortal, they know that you can only have so many good things in a lifetime, and you also know that they don't come easy. Some take a lot of hard work, some yeah. take luck, and neither comes easy or guaranteed. And so you got to shift for yourself. You got to figure things out somehow. And you might be able to do it with the natural grace of Cable Hogue, a man who ha yeah. does what he has to do, is glad of the things he succeeds at, and doesn't obsess over things like now progress in technology is going to wipe out his business. Well, it's fine. Yeah. And he has yeah. a certain level of detachment. You see yeah. at the end that this way of life he made possible was wiped out. It's America. Things come to be and come to pass in the blink of an eye. There's no lasting power and you have to square with that. You have to be willing to be mortal to a certain extent. In his case, you see that after he passes away in this abandoned way of life of his, there's a coyote there now, but this coyote has a collar. That's the way the movie ends. In the future, things are going to be strangely domesticated, even wild things. There are certain things like you wonder, how is it possible to have the natural grace of Cable Hogue without nature? That's not exactly clear, but at least if you can understand the character, if is a type of human being, is a kind of man especially that Americans can recognize, then maybe there is a way. With certain adjustments, with certain modifications for circumstances, it's not just that you can recognize him in the story, it might be something that you could recognize among Americans, that people really do take this path, find this solution, yeah. so that they can deal with mortality, with the impermanence of all things, especially in America, and find a more natural way of being happy than, say, you know, building things that last forever or founding things that last forever. This is the only movie of Peking Paws where there is a founding, but this founding is very, very transient. It reveals character, but it does not establish character. There's no deeds that are going to perpetuate a man like Cable Hogue. This is all you get. You have to be satisfied with this one individual. Well, he's a very natural 
Exactly, that's the thing. Nature, first of all, looks like violence, crime, injustice, unsparing suffering and inhospitability leading to death. Man is yeah. wicked and nature is heartless. But then it turns out, actually, within nature, there is not just beauty, but some degree of providence. And Cable Hogue is a man yeah. who is tempted by a couple of things. He's tempted by violence, but he refuses. And that makes him a natural slave, so to speak. But then he begins to get life from the land itself, and he becomes a free man. Man, no longer a slave and eventually an owner of property of a business and in some strange way respected and he wants to yeah. make himself civilized right i mean first chance he gets he does go to town to get himself washed up to get himself shaved and you know go have fun with a whore these are all civilized things to do he's not entirely a man of the desert he is to some extent at home in the city but only for a little while and he is a man of calculation, so he thinks he's going to go have sex now, but he stops in the middle of things because he's got to do this legal thing. He's got to fulfill the letter of the law now so that he actually has property. So he's not a romantic exactly either. He has these complicated parts put together. To some extent, he wants property. To some extent, he wants freedom to do for himself and be by himself. To some extent, he wants love. And he's split in these different directions. And for a while, they add up, but they are very temporary. The parts in him, just like America, keep changing. When you look at what he is, he is nothing. Yeah. In the sense that he doesn't know how to read or write. None of the things that you would need in civilized society are apparent in him. And yet there's a certain kind of natural dignity, natural desire to improve. Yes. And what he does is he shows that you can do that even in the midst of the most inhospitable kind of world. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, uh, how people respond in different cultures. I don't know if you ever read uh, Ed Bansfield's book, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. Yes. The point of it is you can be raised in a garden and turn it into a desert. Yes. Or you can be like the Mormons. You can go into the desert, as Banfield points out, and turn it into a garden. Yes. And it's just a matter of what it is and how it is that you proceed. From the point of view of Peckinpah, Hogue is a saintly man, but not religious in the way in which yeah. most saintly men would be portrayed. Kind of a natural person. And for him, the world, the, the desert is a cathedral. He knows the stars. He knows the animals. He's learned in the ways of things that are pre-literate, yes. the sense of civilization. Yeah, he's a good man in a natural sense. He's sort of like Rousseau's yeah. good man, who is good because he's natural. He provides for his self-preservation, and beyond that, he's actually pretty happy. Yeah, it's very clear. Robards was really great in that role. I yes. mean, that was a hard role to portray, and so was Stella Stevens. They were great together. I mean, even Peckinpah was really impressed with some of those scenes when he was filming them together. So it was a movie that dealt with all the themes that animated Peckinpah's own life and created such a tension in his life. You know, his family and particularly his mother was very religious, but in a real orthodox way, the way religions practice it. Peckinpah had a great deal of respect for all these people, but he couldn't believe in the same way as his mother did. Yes. And, you know, his notions that he had from his father about honor and nobility and all of those things, he never could find in people that he actually met in Hollywood or in his profession. So in a way, he put himself up on the screen, and that was where he tried to reveal himself. So every movie he does, he reveals himself. 
Yeah. And this was the one where he's most self-revelatory. I mean, this is how he probably would dream about these more profound kinds of questions that you can understand historically in a very complicated way. You know, what happens when progress moves from a condition where humans are dependent upon the animal world and when they create the mechanical world? All of these transformations are profound in terms of what the effect is, how to reveal them in a simple way, which is what he was doing here, what it does to individual human beings when, you know, you can make a living and you can prosper and you can establish community, becoming respected the way Hogue did without any of the trappings of civilization as the things that got that for him. What got everything for him was his own labor. Yeah. and his own ingenuity and turning that into property that could sustain lives and create new possibilities. Yeah, you make a very good point here that there's a difference between the freedom, which means living in dependence to the land, and the kind of freedom of the city, which is freedom from the land. The car liberates you from the tyranny of distances, whereas yeah. with Cable Hogue, it's the other way around. He's perfectly fine with the tyranny of the desert. There, he can be free. He just doesn't like the yeah. tyranny of men or the tyranny of machines, schedules, moving parts, all these regularities of science and technology. That's the part that gets yeah. him killed because he's not used to these things. More like a child or an no. animal than a man, he trips the brake on the car that eventually runs him over and kills yeah. him. It is a stupid, meaningless death in a sense because he's not fit for the mechanical world. Right. But when you notice how Peckinpah could have developed a creature like Cable Hogue, who when he found the water and he was able to drink, that could have been had he not seen all of the great possibilities that you get when you look at the transformation brought about by thinkers like Locke or Adam Smith. You would never have developed that Hogue he would have gotten his water and he'd have gone off into the desert. He would have just been some other human being that just tried to satisfy the desires they had. It would not have created this character of Cable Ho yeah. that reveals so much more in terms of the way humans have to relate to whatever condition they find themselves in. It's rare you find yourself in a desert dying of thirst, but what you make of that can become very interesting relate it to some of the other movies that he made where you see similar things, similar themes in different circumstances, like The Wild Bunch. That's another end of the West movie, but it's not the end of the West movie like Cable Hogue. Yes. Cable Hogue is more about the things that are required just to be able to survive and prosper in an environment. Because in every environment, you have to be able to live. You have to create the conditions for comfort. It doesn't have to be extravagant comfort. And he didn't live in extravagant comfort. Yes, exactly. That's a very important thing, that he does not have luxuries there. Even yeah. something like a shave and a whore, those are luxuries of the city. Yeah, you can yeah. have a simple life. You can have natural justice, that is to say, provision for common needs with other people. Like anybody who needs water from him can give him something he needs in return. Yeah. And every Everybody gets to live better for it. So that's like the difference between the city and on the other hand, the city of pigs in Plato's Republic. Yeah. It's a humiliating name because they live like pigs. Yeah. But what it actually means is these people satisfy their real human pigs. natural needs. Exactly. That's the only healthy yeah. city you'll ever find. Yeah. There alone, natural justice doesn't lead to the excesses, to the luxuries, to the splendor yeah. that always conceals and prompts cruelty. 
So in this movie, the guys you would see in all the other Peck and Palm movies, they just appear for a couple of minutes at the beginning and at the end, Strother Martin and L.Q. Jones. The bad yeah, guys, the yeah. ruffians, the men who choose violence, the way of death. This is completely foreign. In this case, property is tied up with life and with the goodness of yeah. things. Cable Hogue really does believe that there is providence in this world. Who knows about the next world, but in this world, you can see it. There is evident providence. It's incomplete, but it is truly good. And so you could enjoy being human. No, right. And, and even in the way in which he provisioned uh, Cable Springs, it wasn't in terms of making it more luxurious. It was just economy. He had a table. He had dishes there that were nailed down. You could just wash them off yep. <laughs> easily. It was all about usefulness making yes. it more comfortable for people that are going, you know, in those long distances in a thing like a stagecoach. Well, it's hard to fathom that now yep. for people, but those little comforts were tremendous. And if you came to a place in the middle of the desert and you had some shade, you had some water and you had something to eat, that's not certainly a decadent capitalism, but it is, it is a, a comfortable kind of self-preservation. Exactly. It is the Lockean way put in its brightest light because it is put in its founding moment. Nobody is stealing anything yeah, I... from anybody or nobody feels deceived in any way. As yet, our natural needs, in as much as they are obvious and the world allows that we provide for ourselves, allow our powers to provide for us without creating terrible trouble as yet. He dies yeah. at the right moment. He dies before he goes somewhere where people might want to rob him or humiliate him or whatever. But you notice he has to make people come to understand that when he provides this water, people then who, who just come upon it later, they don't know the great deed that he created there for mm -hmm. them. So they don't want to pay. They think they have a right to it. He has to force them to understand that this is a common good. You have to respect it. You yeah. can't treat it selfishly because you have come upon it. You don't realize the labor that went into that, what it meant to be able to get that. And so cooperation is necessary. But the first few customers there, they didn't really want to pay because, you know, it's like all of this stuff before there is any private property. Everyone thinks it's everybody's. Yeah. That means that it's really not going to be useful to anyone over in the long run. Yeah. You have to create the conditions where it can be sustained in a useful way. And that's going to require what Hogue did. He went in and got, he bought access to a created property there, and then everybody benefited from it. Yeah, he made something reliable and good for all sorts of people who'd be risking their lives otherwise. But indeed, it takes a certain degree of violence, of threat of force to get people yeah, to sure, pay up because sure. otherwise they don't want to. Just like the people in the city whom he wants to get some money and help from to get this done, they don't believe it. And so you see here these yeah. two aspects of nature as a desert that will kill you as soon as smile at you. And on the other hand, this beautiful place that's an oasis literally in the desert. Both of these things are true, but people can't quite see their way from the one to the other. The people who are supposed to be helpful, the law, you know, the bank, things like that, the tavern. Yeah. But on the other hand, yeah. once it does turn into an oasis, everybody takes it for granted. No, right, right. People took it for granted that it'll kill you, and that when it turns provident, they take it for granted that it will provide. Indeed, the problem yeah. is that human work and what it takes to get something done is neglected either way. 
Some people think it's impossible to do anything and some people don't think it's even necessary to do anything. So you cannot have either attitude. You cannot think that the world is simply and fully hostile, so there's no point in striving. But you can't think either that the world is a paradise. If you think you live in God's Garden of Eden, you don't need to be grateful for anybody's work and you don't need to pay for anything. You have a right to everything you want. So that's not acceptable either. You have to have a kind of in-between attitude, which comes to Cable Hog because he's very reluctant to be violent. But on the other hand, he understands that he will die if he can't provide for himself. It's not a kind of Hobbesian death like in other movies where you kill or get killed. It's a Lockean death where you're going to starve or die of thirst. You have to provide for your natural necessities. That's what should make you afraid. Yeah, what Hogue shows, too, though, is when you go into this town, the people that have established ways have routinized those ways to such an extent that they don't even know the the importance of those things. They just become, like, bureaucratic. But when Hogue goes in, he can't read or write, and he asks direct questions. He wants to get right down to the essence. Yeah. So when you have all these ways of doing things that become traditional, when you have methods of organizing things that become bureaucratic, the means become more important than the end. Yep, and that's part of the point of the city. The city establishes independence from nature, and people presume on it, and they end up thinking that their ceremonies or rituals or conventions are more important than life in a strange way. Yeah, that's why Hogue is so interesting, because about him there is a directness, a kind of curiosity that just goes to the heart of what it is that needs to be done. And it's not embellished in any way. There's no adornments. Yeah. Nothing. He's a very practical, very likable guy, and he doesn't seem to conceal much. But there is something about him that is deeply intriguing. It's clear that Cable Hogue is Cable Hogue. He's presented in the most revealing moment of his life, but he's always been this way. But in another sense, what happened to him in the desert, betrayed by his fellow outlaws, left for dead, saved by luck and his labor, this stuff consists in a kind of epiphany since he changes his way of life. So it's hard to see to what extent he was natural, to what extent he learned something through this epiphany and, you know, how exactly these things go together. But indeed, you can see more clearly where he stands to the city, which is so conventional, since he seems to be almost not at all conventional. Yeah, what you notice about the characters in this one, and particularly Cable Hogue, it's almost as if he has no history. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything about him. He just appears on the desert. <laughs> you know, you don't know where he came from. And it's true of a lot of the other characters in there. You don't know a whole lot about Hilby either. But, you know, people like to think that there's all these backstories, but there's really no backstories here to speak of. You have to make sense of this through what is presented. Yes, exactly. And these are the kinds of people, partly because of the story, partly because the kinds of people they are, that reveal themselves in their character in this action. So you can get a sense of who these people are. Yeah, sure. You don't need an elaborate story. And you can see that they're different in certain ways. You would never learn anything about Hildy if she didn't fall in love with Cable Hogue. Because otherwise she's crafty, she knows you have to deceive men, she knows the ways of the city, she can only live as a whore, but they'll kick her out as soon as they get civilized and think they've had enough of this stuff. So she knows where she stands and why she has to keep going. And so she would conceal herself, whereas with Cable Hook she can be natural because he too is natural. 
and that's what makes him so easily recognizable in his actions. You see exactly who he is. There is no other secret part. Yeah. No, right. And in a way, that's the way to start, right? You're looking at it for the first time. Yes. And that reveals the things in their essence more effectively than does the history, because then you have to go into these psychological or, you know, some other ways of trying to explain something. And Peckinpah does it, I think, in a kind of theoretical way where these problems, you can take volumes and volumes to expound on any one of these themes. He reveals a certain problem with it and does it in a way that's very intelligent. Yes, that's the advantage of having this sort of coherent form of art where if you want to have an accident in the story, you have to plan it out. In a history, all sorts of things happen by accident. Somebody drops dead for no good reason at some point. Here, everybody who drops dead drops dead for a reason. It's immensely clarifying. Yeah, no, that's true. It's too bad that the movie didn't get the uh, attention and perhaps the respect it deserved at the time. Partly, you know, there are a lot of things that played against it, but it might have changed Peckinpah's whole trajectory of his career after that, because, you know, he had a hard time getting movies. The next one after this one was Straw Dogs. Yeah, he had to go to England to make a movie. Yeah, right. And so he got increasingly removed from being able to tell the kind of stories I think he wanted to tell. He did some other ones that I think still show the old Peck and Paw. I mean, like Junior Bonner, even yeah. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Those had real points where they were great, but in the whole, they weren't good as some of the earlier ones. Yeah, this is the last time you see him in full control of a work organizing everything, everybody's talent contributes to this stuff. Everything in the world gets along, even if it's a disastrous thing as a shoot. It's a disaster that results in something that's damn near a masterpiece, which is very, very funny if you think about it. That's what he could do. You know, he had all his troubles, all his misery, all his alcoholism, but he could do amazing things. Well, you know, the thing after this, too, is Draw Dog, the producer, Daniel Melnick, I think his name was, mm-hmm. who had also produced Noon Wine. I did not it know that. It was the Catherine Ann Porter story, short story, and Jason Robards and Olivia de Havilland starred in it. Uh-huh. And Melnick got Peck and Paw to direct it. I mean, it's widely considered one of the best things that Peck and Paw had done. Even Catherine Ann Porter thought it was great. She thought it was really a great rendition of her, her short story. That movie, that too got lost. The reason why that was ever given to the Library of Congress is that Jason Robards had his own private copy of it. He liked it so much. So he, he liked Peck and Paul a lot. And so wow. did Melnick. Wow. And Melnick was the guy who, after uh, Cable Hogue, produced Straw Dogs. But he admitted that it was getting impossible to deal with Peck and Paul. I mean, he would sit in his office over there in England, he'd throw a knife in the door. (laughs) One time Melnick said that they got into a quarrel and he threw a knife at him. I mean, he was getting more and more, as he got older, into more alcoholism and more drugs. So part of that was the fact that his career was not going where it could have gone after Wild Bunch. Yeah. But again, you never know. But it's pretty interesting that, that these things do even play out the way they do. And because there's a lot of chance that's involved in how these artists themselves get to reveal themselves. Yes, indeed. Things like Cable Hogue are rare moments altogether. 
in a way, the movie had everything going against it from circumstances, weather, problems with the shoot, yeah, right. problems with no, the they really did. And even the fact that the studios tried to kill the movie, basically. It made some money, it was all right yeah. eventually, but they didn't want to promote it just out of spite. And it was only in recent decades that this became respected as a damn near masterpiece. Yeah. And so you see that oh, yeah. things have a funny way of turning around, too. Peking Paw's reputation, unlike Peking Paw, survived long enough to receive their just desserts. Yeah, that's true. Well, sir, I think this wraps up our discussion of Cable Hogue and for the meantime, our discussion of Sam Peking Paw. We will have to find out some yeah. more things to talk about and do this again soon. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for doing it, sir. It's always okay. a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Good talking to you, Tito. All the best. Thank you. Bye.